Good morning. I am so excited to be here. I am both happy and humbled to be here. I don't leave home that much anymore. I'll tell you why as we move through the, the conversation we're going to have together this morning. But um, when I do get invitations, um, I say no is what I do. I just say no. And then when one comes and I feel like a little tug in my heart, I, I talk to my husband and we pray about it. And when we get a yes, we're really excited. And so no joke, I was walking up to the doors this morning just feeling goosebumpy about why I'm here and what God wants to do. So I am Bo Stern. I, I do live in Bend, Oregon. Do you have a vacation there? Why haven't I seen you at church? What's going on? People who go on vacation and don't go to church? What's happening? <laughs> I'm actually always astounded when I meet people who are at our church on vacation. I'm like, what are you, what are you doing here? There are lots of good restaurants. <laughs> we serve like day-old cinnamon rolls, so I don't know. Um, that makes you want to come on vacation, doesn't it? <laughs> I am really excited to be here, and I want to launch in, and then I'll tell you a little more of my story as we go. Winston Churchill said, there comes to each in his life that very special moment when he is figuratively tapped on the shoulder and invited to do a very special work, unique to him and fitted to his talents. What tragedy if that moment finds him unprepared or unqualified for what would have been his finest hour. Is that not the coolest quote? Don't you wish you would have said it? People could quote you on Facebook and stuff. I, mean, I love that quote. I think it gets it just right. But I wonder about it because this idea of having my finest hour, that's really compelling to me. I mean, the church talks a lot about purpose, and I think sometimes we're a little purpose-driven to death. We've kind of, the word has lost its punch a little bit. But, but when I talk, especially to women, I find that their greatest fear in life is not actually fear of death, fear of losing a relationship, fear of poverty. Their greatest fear is fear that they will get to the end of their life and say all that people have to say about me is that she kept the checkbook balance and the crust cut off the sandwiches. She just didn't quite do it. She didn't quite do anything that left a mark on the world. We're all looking for a way to do that, but I think it's a little weird to find out how. How do we find our finest hour? I mean, that's a grand concept. My daughter found hers when she was six. I know, we're pretty awesome parents that way. What happened was, we, we got this house in Bend, and it had the ugliest wallpaper ever. And it was stuck to the walls in a way that it would survive nuclear attack. Like the house would fall, but the wallpaper would still be standing. And so I'm too cheap to rent a steamer, especially when I have child labor. So I lined my little girls up on the wall and they start chipping away at this this wallpaper and they're about six and nine at the time I have four kids by the way and now they're grown and they can't they don't do what I tell them to do anymore but they did then and so they're like chipping the wallpaper off and it's slow going and just when I'm ready to say let's just sell the dumb house and move one of my daughters the six-year-old starts getting big sheets of it off and it's going really well for her and Whitney my nine-year-old turns to her and she says Victoria you are so good at this and Tori looks at Whitney, and she shakes her little finger in her face, and she says, Whitney, I was made for this. I was made for it. It's not true. She didn't become a wallpaper stripper or a stripper of any kind, so that's good. Um, isn't it interesting to find the thing you were made to do? 
I had a moment like that when I was in a hospital, and I used to hate hospitals. I, I kind of love them now, but I used to hate them. And I went to visit a woman. I, I went reluctantly. I actually only went to Farmer's Market willingly. Our Farmer's Market in Bend is on the lawn outside of our hospital, St. Charles. And so I'm just going innocently to get some zucchini and go home. That's my whole plan. And while I'm there, I remember there's a woman in the hospital and she's very old, and she's from our church, and she's dying. We know she's in her final days. And I feel tapped on the shoulder. I feel God say to me, you go see Dorothy. And I am like, no, <laughs> I don't want to go. And I argue with him for a while, and then I make a bunch of deals with him, and then I do all those things, and I finally go see her. And we had this incredible conversation. She talked to me about her husband, who she adored, who had gone on to be with Jesus long before her. She talked to me about her work as a nurse. She talked to me about her children. And she kept saying throughout the conversation, I can't believe you've come. I just, I can't believe you've come. And I, I prayed with her, and I'm, I don't want to be overly woo-woo or spooky or whatever, but I, I'm just going to tell you that in the moment, I've never felt such a thin veil between me and eternity. I, you could feel little fluttery wings in that room. I'm just saying it. And because she was ready. And I could almost just feel Jesus on the other side just waiting to, to welcome her into his hug. And so at the very end, I said, it's been so good to be with you, Dorothy. And she looked at me and said, it's been so good to be with you, Mary. She didn't know it was me. In fact, I know who she thought it was. Mary Haynes was one of the original pastors at Westside Church 30 years ago when Dorothy had been young. And she had since moved to Africa. And so can you just take a second, just a second, because sometimes I think we trivialize the goodness of God. We don't trivialize his power. We don't trivialize his judgment. We trivialize his goodness. And imagine the goodness of a God that in the dying moments of an 87-year-old woman, he would send Mary from Africa to be with her? You think I fixed her mistake? And so I've done a lot of cool things in life. I've really been blessed. I've gotten to speak to a lot of people. I've gotten to write some books. I've done some things I never imagined I would do. But I'm telling you, my finest hour, no one knew who I was except for Jesus. And sometimes our finest hour doesn't feel like our finest hour. That's the trick of it, I think. So we're looking for this thing, and we don't know how to identify it, and we don't know how to find it, so how do we? I think probably the best place to start is to find our place in an epic story, in something bigger than us, in a grand adventure. We want to be a part of something big. And if, if speakers have little tilts in their life. My little thing, my passion is narrative theology. It's a big word that just really means the story of God, understanding the story of God. Because really, the gospel is a story. And, and I've never known anyone who goes on a long road trip and says, honey, while we go on the road trip, I just want you to read some recipes to me. Just read an encyclopedia, read a map to me. Nobody wants that. They want to read a story. We want a story. We don't want a recipe. But in American churches, we have turned the gospel into the four spiritual laws. We have turned a grand, beautiful story into something that looks a lot like a recipe for lasagna instead of like a novel for falling in love. 
And that, I think, is what it's supposed to be. That's the upside of narrative theology is that it brings back the life to the life of the gospel. The downside is that it's very difficult to read a story and not imagine yourself as the what? Main character. I used to read Cinderella growing up, and I never once imagined myself as a stepsister. I loved also Lone Ranger because my mother was a, an equal gender. <laughs> She's like, yeah, we're, we're going to teach her everything. I love Lone Ranger, but I never imagined myself as the person who cleaned up after Silver. I wanted to be the one saying, hi, ho, Silver. I wanted to be Cinderella with the glass shoe on my foot. We want to be the star of the story. And so when we look at this grand narrative of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have to be careful that we let ourselves be pulled into the adventure, but we let him be the star of the show. We let the story belong to the hero. And we say, where can I fit? Where can I fit in the story? So it starts as all good stories do. Once upon a time. And you guys, as I draw this picture for you, would you keep in mind that I was a theology major? And I did not take art classes. I flunked every art class. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Stars, just to make it really believable. Kind of dimensional. <laughs> um, God created the heavens and the earth. Who created? God. The story is about who? God. The person who does the work is the subject of the story. The creation is the subject of him. And so he creates the heavens and earth, and into the heavens and earth he puts abundance. He puts flowers and lands and trees and galaxies and oceans and ecosystems and skeletal systems and respiratory systems. And he puts mankind, Adam and Eve. We'll put Eve in a skirt so we know, and we'll give her some flowing hair. I could do this all day, you guys. Um, <laughs> he puts them in there and he says, you can have it all. This is your home. You can have all of it. I, there are no boundaries. And he puts one tree there because God, I think, does not want forced servitude. I don't think he was looking to make slaves. He was looking to make friends. And a friend is only a friend if they love you back. When I married my husband, he didn't say, I agree. I agree. I will say I love you three times a day. I will have coffee with you on the deck because I signed the contract. It, you can, being able to get in and out is what makes love heartbreaking, and it's what makes love wonderful. And so really the tree is a way out. And so he says you can't have the fruit of this tree, but you can have everything else. The rest of the story belongs to you. And so it, just like every good story, this story has a villain, and the villain slithers in in the form of a snake. The serpent, we know him as our arch enemy, Satan. He comes to Eve and he says, wouldn't you like to have this piece of fruit? And Eve is not hungry. Eve doesn't need the fruit. She's got everything else. And so he needs to have another argument. He needs to spin it a better way. And so he says, wouldn't you like to be like God? Now, who's the star of the story? God. Wouldn't you like to be the star of the story. And Eve is like, good idea. And so she eats, and Adam eats after her, and they fall. They fall and they fall, and all of humanity falls after them. All of humankind follows behind them. And I always say, if Eve wouldn't have eaten the apple, I probably would have, so we'll let her off the hook. Um, 
So we fall so hard, humankind, that God regrets that he ever made man. And he calls to one righteous man. Who is it? Anyone know? Noah. Does anyone think it's funny that we decorate nurseries with Noah and the ark, the greatest catastrophe of all kind? (laughs) Like, maybe Chernobyl is the nursery decoration or, you know, whatever. Okay, Noah, cul-de-sacs. The speaker's getting cul-de-sacs, and it's hard to get out sometimes. (laughs) So God calls to Noah, and he says, will you bring people back into my story? And Noah says, yes, and we're saved. And then we fall. We fall and we fall, and man starts to build their own story again. They start to want to be the star, Tower of Babel, all that stuff. And God calls to Abraham. And he says, will you leave everyone you've known, leave your city, leave your town, leave your parents, leave everything, and step into my story? And Abraham says yes. And his sons after him say yes. They do it imperfectly. They mess up a lot. But they live with an awareness that there's more going on. The story of God is the grand adventure, and we want to be a part of it. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph live in an awareness of the story of God. And then they eventually fall. They fall and they fall until the people of Israel land in 400 years of slavery to the Egyptians. And God calls to who? Moses. You guys are theologians. You're doing so good. God calls to Moses and he says, will you lead my people out of the lowlands of the story they've created and back into my plot line? And Moses says, yes. And Moses and Joshua lead the people out and they establish a thriving land in the promised land and it's all beautiful and wonderful. And then they start to fall. They fall and they fall until we get to the ugly chapter of Judges that nobody likes at all. The preachers don't preach out of Judges. You know, that concubine story, it's awful. Um, So... They fall and fall, and God eventually calls to David. And he says, will you bring my people back? And David says, yes, and the people flourish. And for the first time ever, the people of God are a worldwide superpower. They are fat and sassy. They are doing well. Solomon comes after David, and he gets wobbly in his devotion to the Lord. And then the kings after him are real wobbly, and they fall. And so in all the history of the kings of Israel, there are only eight who follow God and many, many who do not. And eventually, the people of Israel fall and fall and fall until they land in 400 years of silence when God does not speak to anyone. And for my money, give me slavery over silence any day. And so the history of the Old Testament is very complicated and very simple. It's people stepping into the story of God and out of the story of God. People finding their finest hour and people unaware and unqualified and unprepared for their finest hour. And then the silence and the, and the timeline is split by the Son of God. Jesus says, I'm going to go tell him the story myself. I'm going to go tell them that there's a better way, that there's a bigger plan, that there's a grander narrative that they can be a part of. And Jesus comes and he takes on flesh. In fact, the disciple John says, the story became flesh and moved into our neighborhood. The word became flesh and lived with us. Here comes the real story of God living, breathing, walking right along us. And, And John says, and I love it, in the Greek it's beautiful. He says, we beheld it. We touched him. We saw him. He was here. And so his death, burial, and resurrection ushers in the first and current church. The work of the church happens 
after this. And the, the history of the church in the 2,000 years since its inception looks a lot like this, yeah? Up, down, in, out, those darn crusades, then revivals, then all kinds of things. But let's just be super honest this morning, because why not? I'm going home to Bend. You don't have to talk to me until August when I'm back. Um, <laughs> but this is what our lives look like, too. Don't you think, if you're being honest, in, out of the story of God? In fact, if I'm being completely transparent with you, this is what my Tuesday looked like. You know, in the morning I'm doing great, and then the first kid gets up, and it's like, oh, my word, what's going on? And, the, you know, we get we're in and out. We, we like to build a story in the lowlands. Sometimes it feels comfortable down there. There are not very many expectations down there. And so the church has a history that looks a lot like this. And then in Revelation, we see God coming back, and there is a new heavens and new earth. And that's a beautiful thing. And so... <clears throat> The thing is that even though the history of everything is up, down, up, down like a heart monitor, the, the story of God has always been unfailingly consistent. His story is like a red line that runs over the top of all history. Our timeline runs in, out, up, down, but his story is always steady. And you can tell the story of God in three words. You can tell it, it's, it's very clear, it's very simple. The purpose of God has always been create, restore, redeem. Always. You can bobble roulette it. You can point to any scripture in the word of God and you can see how God is working to create, restore, or redeem something. Even in correction, he's working to restore something. And so his story is consistent. It's only our story that goes in and out of it. <clears throat> So we see that from the beginning, God created a new beginning. In the beginning, God created a new heavens and a new earth. He knew this was coming all along. And I think, you know, the Word of God is interesting because it's so large. It's like 1,500 pages. I've given my adult life to studying it, but I know a lot of people just find it overwhelming, and I sometimes do as well. Um, my daughter went on a missions trip last year to L.A., and it ended as all good missions trips do, at Magic Mountain. And <laughs> so she uh, was in the restroom at Magic Mountain, and one of her leaders came in. And her leader had one of those fold-out maps they give you when you come in. And she opens it up in front of Tess, and she says, Tess, I'm sorry, I can't find the you are here symbol on this map. Can you just let that sink in for a sec? The map is not a GPS. <laughs> the map is just a map. The map can tell them where to find the best corn dog. It can tell them where to find the rides. It can tell them where to find the Ferris wheel. It cannot tell them where they are. It can't tell them where they are standing. And I think many times we look at the word of God like that. We say, I know that it is the map to so much treasure. I know that in these pages are peace and joy and health and happiness and prosperity and goodness and the fruits of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit and all these things. But I do not know where I am in this book. And so the story of God started in the beginning. It will end in the beginning. It will end in the new beginning. And so has this happened yet, this revelation moment? Anyone see white horses in the sky today? Any earthquakes? Any, I mean, maybe somewhere, but <laughs> I don't think we're living in the days of revelation today. This is still yet to happen. And so between the last pages of the book of Jude in your Bible... And the first page of Revelation, guess what? You 
are here. You are here. You are in the pages of this unfinished book. You are living the grandest story ever told if you want to. You are here. And my life changed the day I started reading it that way. The day I started reading the Battle of Joshua put right upside along the Battle of Bo. Because I have this little theory that when we get to heaven, we may be issued new Bibles with our stories in them. They'll tell the story of recovered addiction you never thought you could do. They'll tell the story of the person you reached out to whose life was changed because of that. They'll tell our stories. Because when we connect to the red line, everything changes. See, because I'm standing here today, and our feet are firmly planted on the timeline. This is an immovable timeline. June 1st. <laughs> June 1st. 2014. We're standing on this day and we're not getting off of it till midnight. But the thing is that the red line is running all over our heads. God's purpose is at play right now. It's happening right now. And we choose whether or not we'll find it. We choose whether or not we'll engage in it. We have to decide, am I going to love this thing or not? Am I going to find something in the, on the red line or am I going to live in the lowlands where I get to be the star but the story is sort of shabby? So a couple of things. How do you do it? How do you find your place on the red line? I think one of the things that astounds me about red line purpose, because it might seem sort of selfish of God to tie our finest moment to his big mission. Maybe that seems like, isn't it sort of egotistical? It all has to be about God. Uh, even if it was egotistical, you, when you write the story, you can decide. <laughs> but he did it. I think, though, that I've changed my mind about that because in February of 2011, I sat in a doctor's office in Providence while they told my husband of 26 years, strongest man I've ever known, that he has Lou Gehrig's disease. And... I had a day or two of really saying to the Lord, you got it wrong. You got my story wrong. Because I know so many men, I mean, you can just watch the news one time and see a man who uses his muscles to hurt people. And my husband has only lived to help people. And I was, you got my story wrong. But as I've watched it play out over three years, and I've watched my husband slowly be dismantled by this disease, I have watched his purpose come alive. I have watched him find the red line in his life in a way he never has before. And I am telling you, the beauty of connecting your story to God's story is there is no limitation there. There is nothing that can hold you back from the story of God. There's no ALS on the red line. ALS is just an inciting incident on the red line. Noah and the ark, David and Goliath, Moses and the Red Sea, everyone who's ever done anything faced a giant they didn't know how to deal with. And when they faced it, they connected to God's resources, and it launched them into the greater purpose than they had ever known. This is the beauty of connecting to the red line. I'm watching it happen, you guys. 
And I am not going to pretend here. I am not going to sit here and fake it and tell you ALS is this great thing. It is not. It's rotten. It's brutal. I don't wish it on anyone. But I am telling you, it has opened doors for us to live a grander story. So how do we do it? How do we find the red line? A couple of things. One is I think we have to dive into the story in a way we never have before. We have to see his story. Isn't that interesting, history? His story. And we have to sometimes, sorry about that, you can charge me for that one. Um, sometimes in order to read the word of God like we're really living it, you've got to maybe throw out your Bible reading plan. You gotta say, I'm gonna stop checking the box and start living the story. I'm gonna see myself in the battles. I'm gonna see myself in the redemption. I'm gonna see how this might apply to my world and my cul-de-sac and my workplace. How can I be on the red line here? You, you need to get into the story because it's grand and beautiful. And then <clears throat> the second thing I think we need to do is fire our narrator. You gotta fire that voice inside your head that keeps distracting and discouraging you from becoming something that God has always intended you to become. And the narrator is gonna try to tell you two different things. One thing, the narrator in your head is gonna tell you you're nothing. The narrator in your head is gonna tell you it's too late, you haven't done anything with your life. They're gonna tell you it's too old, you're too old, you're too poor, you're not educated enough. Once someone acknowledges you, maybe then you can make a difference. Once you find a ministry position, maybe you can make a difference. You have, um, you've made so many mistakes. You know, what we, you know what you did just last night? You can't serve God's purpose today. That would be hypocritical. That, those are the kinds of things the narrator is gonna tell you and you gotta fire that guy you got to fire that guy and get him out of your life because it is not too late. You are not too broke. You are not too bound. You are not too anything to achieve your place on the red line. You are not. It's never too late because you could do it right now. You could do it on your way out of this building today. I was, <clears throat> uh, our pastor did a message a couple of months ago on happiness. And he was saying that Sunday is statistically the happiest day of the week. And I happen to be sitting next to a friend of mine who's a supervisor at Starbucks. Anyone work at Starbucks? Um, and she, wow, this is a first for me as a speaker. This is a well-educated crowd or something because, wow. No, I, in Bend, Oregon, the, the baristas at Starbucks have master's degrees because that's where they work. Um, we don't have very many jobs. Um, so she's a supervisor at Starbucks, and she leans over and says, Sunday's not the happiest day if you work at Starbucks. And I said, really, how come? Because I love Starbucks, and Sunday it seems awesome to me. And she said, no, it's all the cranky Christians on their way to church. <laughs> are you kidding me? Are you even kidding me right now? We are wreaking havoc in our community on our way to the red line. You know, and this is the problem. The problem is the church for so long has thought they are the red line. Once everybody gets here, they'll find their purpose, and that is not true. God does not have a mission for his church. He has a church for his mission. The church serves the red line, or it's nothing. The church serves create, restore, redeem, or it's nothing. Whatever happens inside the walls of the church, if it doesn't happen outside, dead. Dead. And I'm so thankful to be standing in a church where I know I can say that, because this church is not dead. But we have got to know that we can be on purpose at any moment, and nothing needs to stop us from that. I was leaving my hotel this morning, 
going to get some breakfast before I came here, and I didn't sleep very well, and I was tired, and a million excuses, and I saw the front desk gal, and she had been there yesterday, and we had had a nice conversation, and I'm telling you, I wanted to just breeze right by her. And I just, clear as day, heard the Holy Spirit say, well, you're going to go serve the red line at Horizon, but not here at the Century. No red line here? No red line at Hayden? Church. Come on. We have to get on mission. We have to get our feet firmly planted with the, the thing that God is doing. Because you know who you are? You know who you really, really are? You Christ in you, the hope of glory. You are the hope of glory in Tualatin, Oregon, or wherever it is you call home. You are the hope of glory around your dinner table or you're not. You're the hope of glory in your workplace or not. I don't care how much you want a better job. Live on mission in the one you have and see what God will do with your finest hour. Live on mission. See what God might do with you. It's so big to start to find it. Can I tell you what I hate? I hate ALS Clinic. ALS Clinic is where Steve and I go every four minutes, and people, ALS patients have a saying. They say, ALS clinic is where they measure your slide into the grave. And it does me in. I don't want to go. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where you feel like you get told you're going to die. I mean, ALS is 100% fatal, has a two- to five-year life expectancy. You get told you're going to die on February 10th, 2011, and then you go back and you think there's no bad news to get after that. But I always go to clinic and I'm like, this elevator goes down? What is going on? Because you get worse news and they kind of tell you what's next. And they're awesome people. They're amazing. But it's hard. Everyone hates it. And Steve and I have to, in our car, before we go in, say we are about to face our future. We are going to come face to face with our Goliath. But this is not about us, and this is not about Goliath. This is about all the people who are watching the battle. And this is not about them knowing that God heals or doesn't heal ALS. This is about them knowing that God goes with you into ALS. This is about them knowing not the God who keeps us from all affliction because could we stop preaching that one and start preaching the God who goes with you into all affliction? And if they see that God, what if it might change their life? What if the way we could be the hope of glory at ALS Clinic would change someone's eternity? And so we pray, no matter what we hear today, no matter how we feel about it, would you please make our footsteps really sparkly so that people want to follow. People want to follow us to hope. The narrator wants to tell you you're not enough. The narrator wants to tell you you're nothing. But the narrator also wants to tell you you're everything. Don't let them. We're not everything. We're just part. We're part of a grand design. We're a piece of something glorious. We're a piece of something God is doing. But we're not everything. We're not the whole show. And when we become the whole show, we start to build our own story. And I am telling you, and you probably know it already, it's a jungle in the lowlands. 
When we build our own story, we have to fight to compete. We have to fight to survive. We have to build our crowd and build our platform and be the most successful. The standards are high in the lowlands, ironically. Fire the one that tells you you have to be everything and just become what Jesus wants you to become. And don't wait a minute to do it. Do it today. I love to hear people's stories. I'm going to be out by the book table afterwards, and I'd love to hear yours. There comes to each in his life that very special moment when he is figuratively tapped on the shoulder and invited to do a very special work, unique to him and fitted to his talents. What tragedy if that moment finds him unprepared or unqualified or just unaware of what would have been his finest hour. 